Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This sermon by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, Men of Steel. I know it's trendy and all, but I am tired of men wearing their sister's jeans, talking with effeminate lisps, and being soft when they should be strong, and strong when they should be soft. I want to see men with a spine of steel, placed there by their king, eager to stick their necks out for his glory. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Enjoy the message. Men of steel. You see, every guy, isn't there an itch in every guy to want to know how to be fully a man? It isn't there a desire within every woman to see the men around them be fully men? Now, I know I'm talking to a very unique crowd here because if I made that same comment on the streets of, you know, modern America, I might not get an amen to that because we have what's called the metrosexual movement into uh, modern culture, which is men behaving and dressing and weeping like girls. Okay, I'm not against girls weeping. I'm not against guys weeping. I'm against being controlled by emotion as opposed to the word of God and truth. And we have men that are dressed in their tight pink pants and wearing makeup, and I'm not exaggerating here when I say this, that are Christian leaders. We have an effeminization of the church of Jesus Christ. I love femininity, but not for the men. I am fascinated with women being fully feminine and women being all God intends them to be. And it's beautiful, it's elegant, it's dignified. When women are as women ought to be, it is one of the most beautiful things, if not the most beautiful thing on planet Earth. However, it's not very beautiful when men have high heels on and when men are wearing makeup and where men have a thousand sets of shoes. Amen. <laughs> I am not for this sort of masculinity, and I will go on record publicly by saying it, that this is not a trend that leads to strength within a culture, and it does not lead to strength within the body of Christ. For the body of Christ to be as it ought to be, we need men of steel, men that are strong when they need to be strong and soft when they need to be soft. Because it doesn't mean that a man is not supposed to be soft. The problem is that men are soft when they're supposed to be strong. And men are strong at the very point when they should be sensitive. We have it backwards. See, metrosexual men are hard at times. But they're, 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 they're strong when they're supposed to be soft. But we have a lackadaisical soul that has entered into Christianity. And it's men without spine and without steel. Well... Prepare yourself for a message called Men of Steel. And so every once in a while, I whip out a message, because I, I had the message, a measurement of a man, <clears throat> and I said, this is spoken to men. And I said, it doesn't mean that the girls can't listen in and get a great deal from it. But every once in a while, there's a need, a compelling force within me to say, let's speak to the men. And when you speak to the men, do you know that the women actually great, gain greater security? It's like, we need men to be men. Please, men, be men. Because when a man, a man is a man, then a woman can truly function as a woman. When men aren't men, then women have to be men. Because someone needs to be. Who's going to be the man? Okay. <clears throat> uh, 
I had a title for this. It was my working title all week, and it was called The First Sufferer. Because men, when I say someone needs to be a man, that means that someone, there is a necessity within life, within culture, within the occurrences of this world for someone to stand up and to be the first to bear their chest against difficulty, against harm. You see, there is vulnerability all over this earth. We as Americans try and block it out. We don't want to see it. We want to act like it's not there. But there are children all over this earth that are being taken advantage of. There are women all over this earth that are being enslaved. We have greater degrees of problems and difficulty culturally in our world in general than we've ever had maybe throughout all of history. There are 27 million slaves today, human slaves, and that is more than in the days of William Wilberforce, and that's more than in all of Earth's history. 27 million. We have 148 million orphans in the world. The number is so utterly staggering. It's like monopoly money. We just start to fade over, you know, and just look at it and go, oh, yeah, it's a big pile of $1,000 bills. You know, it's not real money. Well, those numbers aren't real to us either. And so we have a tendency to distance ourselves from them. But someone must stand because it's either these kids and these women that are taking the hit or there's someone else in a culture that is supposed to stand in the way and take the hit for them. It's what's known as the first sufferer. If some big meanie comes to the looty house and starts banging on the door, hey, I want in and I want to hurt someone. Who's responsible in the looty home to stand up and bear his chest? Sort of, I put his in that sentence, so you probably know. But if I shove Leslie in front of me and I go run and hide in the basement, what kind of man am I? A, a, a man of steel? No! That, that's terrible! There's no greater crime, and we all know it. Even those of you with a feminist bent know that a man is supposed to stand in that situation. A man is the one that is supposed to take the hit. Honey, take the kids into the basement. Daddy's taking care of this. And daddy may be shaking. He may not feel comfortable with this at all, but he knows what is right, and the man takes the hit. The man is the first sufferer. Someone needs to die for the family. Someone needs to be the one made vulnerable. And it's the man. And so if the men aren't being men, someone has to stand. Always there is a first sufferer. And that first sufferer cannot be the orphans and cannot be the women. It must be the men. We are the ones made of a different material. The reason a man is the one that's supposed to initiate in relationship, <clears throat> do you want to dance? You know how hard that is for a guy? There is not a guy alive who likes that position. But you know why the man is the one that's like, um, will you marry me? You know why the guy is the initiator? It's because he's the one saying, I'll take the rejection. I'm willing. Because if the girl is put in the position to propose and we reject her as a man, she's not made to handle that. That isn't the way she was wired. It, it destroys a girl to put such weight upon them. They are built for different things, but not to be the first sufferer. You know, if I'm not home, you know who stands up against the big meanie when he comes knocking? 
It's Leslie. Without a hesitation, my wife stands up and says, kids, into the basement. Mommy's taking care of this. But mommy shows a value to daddy by allowing daddy to be the one who stands. And that's what's needed in the church of Jesus Christ today. It doesn't mean we don't need strong women. It's just that we desperately need strong men for women to be strong. So men of steel, the first thing I want to introduce you to is what I would call the return of the steel hammer. And I have a little subtitle to this, Made Strong to Take the Fiercest Blows and Accomplish the Hardest Tasks. Some of you have heard me talk about the steel hammer. But a steel hammer, it's one tough instrument. We know it as a tool. Okay, and we guys like to go to like uh, Lowe's and look at the tools. You know, we make noises with them. We're like, vroom, uh, as, we're, as we're staring at it. We just, you know, the tools. Uh, and so a steel hammer, a good hammer, is a powerful tool. Now, we don't use steel hammers like we used to. We have nail guns and things like that. So it doesn't, it sort of robs a little from this story. But we all know what a good steel hammer is. Steel hammers are assigned a very unpleasant task. See that nail? You take your face and you beat it against that nail to get it into its proper place so that this structure holds together. Ah, take me. Who wants that job? Who's willing to be the steel hammer? We have an entire generation of men built as steel hammers, but who haven't ever learned their job description. And so this is the illustration I've often given. I think it's in my book, God's Gift to Women, this way. That we as men are used in our culture today as pillow fluffers. Steel hammers, but being misused. And so we're stored in this nice ornate box by the bed. And it's this old lady, this frail old lady, that every night she opens the nice ornate box and grabs the steel hammer, which is us, and fluffs her pillow and then sticks us very delicately back. And we're like, delicate, delicate, please don't drop me. And then she closes it, and we have done our job. And we feel very satisfied with it. What are you doing? Well, I work, uh, you know, I go out and provide for my family. I work at IBM, and I come back and get back in the ornate box and go to sleep. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? That's what a man does. He provides for his family, and so, you know, I invest in stocks, and I have my various things that I do, and, you know, I'm just taking care of my family. We're stuck in an ornate box, and we don't even know that there's more for us as men. One day, a very strange thing happens. The elderly old lady's walking through the room, and there's a nail that is protruding from the bed frame, just sort of sticking out like that. Nails are dangerous. She doesn't see it. We like pop our eye out of the box because, you know, our, our, the old lady's coming. We're like, oh, here she comes. I'm going to be used as a pillow fluffer again. So we're anticipating our job. And then we see it. We behold her hose catching on the nail. And she goes, ah! And there is an instinct within us. There is something within us that feels that we need to rise up and do something. But we immediately put it down and we say, I'm just a pillow fluffer. But then here's the difference between that and every other time. Every other time we've seen the need or felt that cultivation of longing to do something more than fluff pillows. This time is different. Because as we're peeking out of our little ornate box, a hammer, a steel hammer just like us, comes into the room out of nowhere and slams the nail back into the bed frame. And we behold it. 
and we see it and it shakes us to the core because there's something right about it. We need to see it today. Not in a movie like Braveheart or Gladiator. You see a nail pounded, you're like, yeah! And then you leave the movie and you're like, well, you know, it's good stuff, man movie. Yeah, but it's not real. Where's the reality? We need men of steel in reality, not in movies. We need them here, now, on planet Earth. We need the return of the steel hammer. Men that know their job and men that delight to do their job. A few weeks ago, I gave a message called Extraordinary Courage, and I gave a little quotation from the Apostle Paul. To die is gain. And Paul said, take me, Jesus. I would rather die. If you want me here, it's good. But I want to give my life, spend my body and my blood for you, Jesus. Ignatius, when he's told he's going to be fed to the lions, he rejoices. He says, my, fi- my salvation has finally come. What? He called the lions his friends because they were the ones that were going to take him into the presence of the one he loved more than his life. To die is game. And a man knows it. A man relishes battle. A man relishes that protruding nail. Give me nails or I die. Guy quote. (laughs) The man of steel. 1 Corinthians 16. Watch ye. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. The word quit you like men, which by the way is one of my favorite Greek words ever. Andridzomai. I add a little mafia tone to my uh, uh, sound of it because it just needs a grovel in it. Andrizomai. Do you hear it? Rise up like a man. You know, this is Paul talking to the body of Christ, not just to men. Rise up like a man because it isn't just to us men. I know I'm talking to men, but we are called as the body of Christ to be made for the toughest days, the toughest battles. Because it's not just the men that will die in the trenches for Jesus Christ. It's also the women. But we as men model it first. And that's why this is called men of steel. Because we must first show forth to the congregation of believers what it looks like so that they can follow. Quit you like men. Be strong. That's a command, by the way. So for all of you girls in here, quit you like men. Be a man. I know that sounds a little strange, but how, many of, uh, the, how much in the culture is saying to us, get in touch with your feminine side. So if men can get in touch with their feminine side, which I think is a wonderful thing, I think it's great for guys to listen, to feel, to be sensitive and kind, to buy flowers. You know, spritz a little cologne. Just be gentle with that, spritz. <laughs> it's okay for you to smell good, okay? I'm not against it. But quit you like men. Okay, we need steel, and I'm going to go through three specific things that we need steel for. And these are, I could have divided this up into two specific things, but I divided it up into three, even though we could have combined two of these together. And I'll, I'll explain that as we go. But first of all, we as men need steel for those that are weak. Because there's a dying world out there, and they don't have the substance of the strength of the Son of God. 
They don't have anything to turn to because they turn to their own willpower, their own determination, and it's feeble, and it can't rescue them. They're dying, not just going to hell, but they're rotting in their body while they're here. And then there are actually children that are being taken advantage of, and they have no advocate, no father to stand and bear his chest and say, you have to get through me first. They don't have that. They've never even conceived of it. They don't even know that such a thing exists. They've never seen men of steel. We need steel for the weak. So, and then I have a scripture with each one of these, okay? This is uh, dedicated to Mikey Hahn. Because I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was a, as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor and the cause which I knew not I searched out. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. Okay, guys, as I read that, don't you feel that hand? The right hand, it balls up into a fist. We need the commission. There are weak ones out there. There are big meanies knocking on the door. And you say, honey, take the kids into the basement. The man of steel is going to take care of this. And you might not feel like steel when you're doing it. One of my favorite statements is, when I, well, I was talking to Hudson uh, about his job of protecting. And he had misused his sword. He had a foam sword, and he'd hit Harper over the head with it. And so daddy had a lesson that was emerging at the time. And basically I said, you are never, daddy has entrusted you with a sword, but you are never to use that sword to hurt or to harm. You are only to use that sword to rescue and to help. And so I was talking about the fact, I said, if the big meanie comes to the door of this looty house and says, I want to come in and hurt someone, who is responsible, Hudson, to stand up? I call him B, so that's what it'll be in the story. Who's responsible, B, to stand up and and defend this home, and to fight the big meanie. He goes, Daddy. That's right. And if Daddy's gone, and the big meanie comes, who's responsible? Mommy. That's right. Imagine Mommy and Daddy are both gone. And the big meanie comes to the door of this house. Hey, I want in. I want to hurt someone. Who's responsible to stand up and defend? Harper, Dover, and Avonlea. He pauses, and he says, I am. He said, when you stand up against the big meanie to fight him, who will fight for you? He goes, Jesus. The famous statement in the book Scottish Chiefs is, God armeth the patriot. We need heaven to infuse us as men because we're weak. We'll fail in that day. Peter says, I won't deny you. We've said it too. I'll stand up and defend we're stirred by such a message as men. We're like, yes, and we will fail. I want to go off to war, and we will retreat. We need something more than us. The steel is from heaven. We need the stuff of heaven planted inside of us so that we have an intrepidity in that moment of decision. And we say, I will not back down. And then the crowd increases. It goes from 10 armed men against you and you say, I will not back down. And suddenly it's a hundred. And you say back to him, I still won't back down. And then it's a thousand. 
I still won't. It's 10,000. At what point will you crumple? At what point, point will you retreat? And the man of steel says, never. Never. I don't care if it's tens of thousands times tens of thousands because my God has defeated them all. We stand on a rock and we will not be moved. That's where the steel comes from. Steel is actually not the most appropriate word. However, since Superman took the term man of steel, it's actually effective. It means something to us as men. But if we were to say it more correctly, it would be men of an adamant, more firm than diamond. We are uncuttable. We are unbudgeable. We are made strong for the task of rescue. There are weak out there. And God is looking to and fro and he says, I see a man. You. Yeah. I need you and I need you now. Stand up. Steal for the truth. Okay, now listen to this. Uh, some of you, as students, you've heard this uh, flow of scripture. But I want you to realize, here's a man. And this man is testifying what the cost is of standing for truth. Because a lot of us in here would say, I stand for truth. Well, measure yourself against this one. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. If that's not enough, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. What does Paul need? He needs steel. Because any normal man crumpled way back at the five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. How about this? One time I actually received 39 lashes from the Jews. What happened to you, buddy? Hey, you've never gone through it. It hurts. And that's the end of the story. Five times he got up and took more. He was stoned and brought outside the city of Lystra, left for dead. He pops back to life. What does he do? He marches back in. Who is this guy? He's a man of steel. He's a man made of a substance more firm than any adamant. He is immovable, unbudgeable, and the enemy can't take him down. And history attests to the fact that such men turn the world upside down. Where are these men? All right, this one could go with steel for the truth. There's no doubt about it. But I want to emphasize it. Steel for the glory of Jesus Christ. Steel for the glory. We are not just made strong for the weak. We are not just made strong to defend the truth. We are made strong for his pleasure so that this world would see him more clearly. Because he is a man of steel. He is immovable. He is a rock. He is unchanging. So when we behold the church of Jesus Christ functioning as it ought to function, and we see the steel in them, we see the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay, so I've cobbled together three different chunks of scripture straight out of a man of steel, David. Oh, David is a man of steel. 
And so I've cobbled this together, and I had to change the pronouns in the very first one so it would all flow together. So, and I put it in brackets, so those of you that are concerned about me altering scripture, I, you can just look at it, and you'll see instead of it being us, I've made it an I, a pronoun I. God is my refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, therefore will not I fear. Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, surely I shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. I shall not be afraid of evil tidings. My heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. My heart is established, I shall not be afraid until I see my desire upon my enemies. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler, the horn of my salvation, my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God I have leaped over a wall. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon my high places. He teaches my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness has made me great. For thou hast girded me with strength unto the battle." Thou hast subdued under me those that rose up against me. Yeah. Who isn't excited about that? You know what? This sort of Christianity scares people today. And they run and hide in a little corner. This is what brings me to life. I need to know that there's strength for the battle. I need to know that there is never a reason to cower. There is never a reason to be ashamed. That God makes my feet firm for the battle. That he will cause me to leap over a wall and run through a troop. Because those walls stand before us as the church of Jesus Christ and his individuals. And those troops are surrounding us. When Mikey and Krista were in Haiti, they were surrounded by walls and strong troops. And the amazing thing about their testimony, their 80 days in Haiti is that they stood on the promises of God and they marched forward and they saw the walls break down into a rubble heap. They saw the troops literally back off and say, we will allow you through. Unbelievable victory. Bearing the chest for the seemingly insignificant. Now, I don't know that I want you necessarily thinking of Superman going, Pfft. however, there's something to the picture to realize that we, as the men of steel, when we see the seemingly insignificant, and God says, that's not insignificant to me. You see, we have a tendency to evaluate our lives based on a humanitarian system that we live in, which says the most valuable people are the wealthy, they're the ones with skills and talents, they're the ones of high political position, and so we curry their favor. We're always washing their feet. We're giving gifts to them. We want to see them happy. And God says, that is completely opposite of my kingdom. Because they, are, they have no value in my kingdom. You want to know who has value in the kingdom of heaven? It's the insignificant ones to this world. It's the ones that are overlooked. 
You take a little child without a mother and a father, and suddenly they're royalty in the kingdom of heaven. The problem is we, the body of Christ, aren't thinking straight. And so we treat them as some type of aid project as opposed to royalty. We're going on a royalty rescue mission. The most valuable on earth today are, in, are vulnerable. And if we heard that the president of the United States was vulnerable, he was surrounded, then you would have sentinels, a secret service that were literally bearing their chests and giving up their life and taking the bullet for him. But how many men of steel in the church are willing to bear their chests and take the bullet? Could you imagine if every man in here, if we knew that there was just one of God's royalty that was vulnerable, that we would pack together and we would say, unto the death. And every single one of us bears our chests and we create a firm wall and we say, you have to go through us to get to him. And even if all of us die to preserve one of God's royalty, in God's economy, he'll spend it. He'll spend us. He'll spend us for them. That's how God thinks. Why else would he kill his son Jesus? Why else would he allow his disciples, his apostles, to be martyred? Because he's after something. And he will leverage the lives of his saints, even his strongest, to get the weak. Bearing the chest for the seemingly insignificant. I'm going to use David as an illustration for this. David. Can you think of anything more insignificant than lambs on a hillside in Judea? What? What value do they have? David literally risks his body and his blood to protect a lamb. Lion comes strolling in and grabs one of his lambs, and David goes running after him, breaks his jaw, and removes the prey out of his teeth. A bear comes in, takes a lamb, and David says, not on my watch goes after the bear and turns him into a bear's skin. That is the attitude of the man of steel. David, for the reputation of God, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would blaspheme the armies of the living God? Now, oftentimes the newer translations say that Goliath was nine, nine and a half feet tall. A cubit, and here's, here's my opinion on the matter, should mean that, that uh, Goliath was 12 feet tall. We got a giant on our hands here who is defying the armies of the living God. We have a boy, a man of steel, I should say a boy of steel, who wasn't even invited to the battle. And he says, who is this? For the reputation of God. You know, not many of us are willing to give up our life for the reputation of God. You know what we would reason? Let him defend his own reputation. I'm not going to spill my blood for it. A man of steel will go after little lambs. A man of steel will go after the reputation of God. David, for the sake of family and friends, he sought the plunderers of Ziklag. When he's out of town, the Amalekites come swooping through and take Ziklag, the, the, all the wives and children, and the plunder of their families, and they run off with it. It's an impossible battle. David's been fighting for weeks. His men are tired, and he says, after them, after them, family, friends, we do not let them go down. Everyone in the world could say it's not worth your life. Protect your life. God's economy is the ones that are seemingly insignificant, expendables. You give up your life for them. David is the next king of Israel. Don't risk yourself, David. We need you. The history of Israel hinges upon you being safe and healthy. Then I will model how God works. He spends his men of steel, and that's how the history of Israel will be established. 
David, for the sake of the parcel of barley and beans, he stood undaunted in Pazdamine. A little, little plot of land where they grew barley and beans. It's insignificant. And all of Israel, says all of Israel fled because an entire Philistine army was marching on a little parcel. And we would say, you know what? Let's fight a different day. We're gonna lose this one. Let's not risk our men. Let's not spend our, our strongest and our best. All of Israel flees, and what does David do? He stands there, draws his sword. The seemingly insignificant are the things that gain the attentions of the men of steel. And all it says is that uh, Eleazar and Shammah stood with him, two of his mighty men. And they took on an entire army of Philistines. And the massive understatement in Scripture, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day. Uh Uh-huh. That's an amazing statement. Three against an army. Men of steel don't lose. Even if they die, they don't lose. And I'm referring to one 2,000 years ago that apparently in the natural realm appeared to lose. But that man of steel destroyed all the powers of earth and hell. He won. Becoming vulnerable to make the vulnerable strong. The illustration, a man named Jesus, the ultimate man of steel. Jesus, because he's so loved, he became a baby and bore our humanity. He became vulnerable. Why would a man do this? He made himself vulnerable. Why? To make the vulnerable strong. Jesus, to wash us, he removed his outer garment and wrapped a towel about his waist. The king of the universe, condescending, humbling himself, Why would he do such a thing? To make us strong. Jesus, for our liberty, he allowed himself to be numbered amongst the lawbreakers. He was associated with criminals. His name was intermixed. He was innocent. And yet to rescue us, the true lawbreakers, he identified with the lawbreakers. He did this for us. A man of steel is willing to forgo his reputation. Jesus, for our healing, He received the most terrible scourging. Jesus, for our redemption, he submitted his almighty hands, his beautiful feet, and his majestic head to defamation. He was mocked and ridiculed, pierced, hands and feet pierced, crown of thorns thrust upon his head. He was a king, and yet they mocked him as a false king. Jesus, for our rescue, he absorbed the worst blows of man, the most horrible blows of darkness, and the entirety of the wrath of God upon himself. What is this? This is a pattern for every man. We don't carry the sins of the world, but we follow the pattern of the man of steel. A man made strong to pour out, to make the weak strong. Who will go for us? This is a scripture from Isaiah. Isaiah has just beheld the glory of Jesus Christ, high and lifted up his train filling the temple of God. He is awestruck, drops to his knees silent, wondering how in the world can anyone stand in such a presence. And he overhears God talking amongst himself, which sounds funny, but that's because there's three of them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are talking. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah overhears this. There's a need. God is saying, I need to send someone. God is saying that someone needs to go on behalf of God. 
here am I. Send me. Now, this is just remembering back to a message called Extraordinary Courage because some of you in here are saying, I'll go. Jesus, I'll go. I'll be the one you send. Brace yourself. Remember, Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was tied mercilessly to two beams of wood and left to hang to death for three days. Paul was beheaded. Stephen was stoned. Philip was crucified. Matthew was slain with the sword. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned and clubbed. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Mark was dragged to pieces. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hung and John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and then exiled to Patmos. We need men of steel in this generation. The job description is open, and God is saying, who can I send? Who will go for us? Before you raise your hand, I want you to understand your job description. God needs to make men strong for the weak. He needs to make men strong for the truth, and he needs to make men strong for the glory. But when you're made strong for the weak, when you're made strong for the truth and when you're made strong for the glory, this is your end. You will be persecuted. You will be torn to pieces. And in the process, God will get his glory. He will get his due and he will get his people. And the weak will be infused with strength. We need men for such an hour. So I'm going to make some job positions open to the men in here. We need... One to be crucified upside down. Who is it in this generation that's willing to stand up and say, I'll be that man? You know what you're getting yourself into? I don't want to romanticize Christianity. I want to give it out straight the way God gives it out, which, by the way, is completely romantic as far as I'm concerned. I love the beauty. I love the majesty of it. It has a background score to it. But we need to take it and realize there is no anesthetization in the process of taking it. Jesus wasn't numbed. He took the pain that we would otherwise have to carry. He took the punishment. The wrath of God literally fell upon him. It wasn't theoretical. It was real. We need a man who will be crucified upside down like Peter. A more painful death than even the upright crucifixion. Who's in? Who's our man in this generation? The job is open. Who will we send, says God? Who will go for us? We need someone to fill the gap. We need one to be tied mercilessly to two beams of wood and left to hang to death for three days. Could you imagine if I set this out in front of all the guys in here and I said, by the end of today, I need you guys to have signed up for these positions. Otherwise, God is looking elsewhere. Are we going to let God look elsewhere? We need someone to put their name next to each one of these. Which one are you going to pick? One needs to be beheaded. One needs to be stoned. Another crucified. We need one guy to be slain with a sword. One stoned and clubbed. One stoned and beheaded. One dragged to pieces. We need yet another crucified. One cruelly beaten and then crucified. One thrust through with a spear. One hung. And we need one to be thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. Which one do you want? What? God can do whatever he wants with my life. I don't know that that has to be the end. If you get this as your end, you're the most privileged. 
This is what the early church esteemed. The apostles got the privilege. They were the ones selected and said, you're my men. You follow me. In the same way Jesus was spent for the, the weak and for the truth and for the glory, God says, and so can you. Thank you. Thank you for such a privilege. To die is gain, says Paul. Give me the beheading. Peter, brought to the cross, he says, I'm unworthy to die in the same form as my Lord. Crucify me differently. They crucified him in a more painful fashion, upside down. Who in their right mind? Say you sign up for one of these, and then you get to the day, and you say, yeah, could you make it more difficult on me? Who would do that? A man of steel who's after the glory of Jesus Christ. So here's the scripture again. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I. Send me. I know the job is uncomfortable. I know the job will mean everything. It'll kill me. It'll drag me to pieces. I'm in. Eight men who will not go. Now what you're going to see, I'm going to list eight different types of men, and some of you will be able to recognize different attributes in yourself that are causing you to not sign up eagerly. These are eight men that cannot understand the call, cannot comprehend it, cannot see it, and for the main part, cannot hear it. They're not in the throne room of heaven overhearing God talking. They're not hearing the commission that God needs a man. Who will go for us? They can't even hear it. As a result, they will not go. Some of you will realize that this list of eight, you could be all eight, but you might be just one, and all it takes is just one of these things, and it will hinder you from going. The unfeeling man. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He can hear about 148 million orphans. He can hear about 27 million slaves, and for whatever reason, there's a callus over his heart. There's only one way that you can care, by the way, and it has nothing to do with being just a compassionate person. It has to do with the fact that your body is overtaken by Jesus Christ and he gives you his heart, but you have to allow it to happen. The unfeeling man can be healed by Jesus Christ and become a healing man. I'm sorry, a feeling man. And a healing man sounds nice. But the only way for you to become a feeling man is that you have to allow God to let you see what's going on in this world. God, give me eyes to see it and give me a heart to feel it. My heart of stone needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. The guilt-ridden man. The enemy specializes in this. He gets you to trip. He gets you to compromise. Then he holds it over you. And when the challenge is coming, who will go? You disqualify yourself. And you say, I'm not good enough. None of us is good enough. It has nothing to do with your purity. It has to do with his purity. He died because of your weakness. Clothe yourself in his strength and rise up. Let Jesus' blood deal with your guilt and cleanse you so that you can be made strong too. The tired man. How many of us as men come home after working all day and right when our kids need us, we get tired? Don't come home and sit in that chair because that chair is your worst destination you could ever pick. You sit in the chair and you've never felt so tired. And it's right then that your kids come up to you and go, Daddy, Daddy. And you can't hear. 
You're not there. You're not present. It's genuine tiredness, but I want you to realize there's a spiritual dimension to it. When your wife says, honey, I really feel we need to pray, you've never felt so tired in your life. Your eyes literally feel like they have dumbbells tied to them. The tired man will not go. He can't even hear it. He's in a slumberous stupor. The workaholic man. What's a man here for? I provide for my family. And he does a good job at it. However, going out and working and supplying and provision for your family is not the end destination of a man. Introducing your family to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the almighty thunder of heaven, and to see the kingdom of heaven planted firmly within their souls is the duty of a man. In the process, you do work and you provide. But that's not the end. That's a means. Because you must provide and supply for your family the same way you'll bear your chest for them. But that isn't your job description. And men will escape the realities of this world and blame it on the fact that they're providing for their family when in actuality they're living for themselves. They don't know how to deal with their family. They don't know how to deal with the crisis in the home. Leave it to the mom. The workaholic men will not go. The distracted man. Oh, there's a thousand distractions. For me, it was sports. I love sports. I love statistics. And I can consume myself in little details. And as a result, I'm not in the throne room of heaven overhearing God saying, who will I send? Who will go for us? Politics. Some of you are so wrapped up in politics and the Fox News channel that you're hearing everything that's going on, but you're not attuned to God. It has nothing to do with the fact that God says, no, throw out anything of reality that's happening in this earth and don't care. No, that isn't what he's saying. But you're distracted because God's saying, hey, focus on me. And we are looking for an excuse to be distracted because we love to have noise. We want the TV on. We just need noise in our life. We need a distraction because we don't want to feel the weight of the lost. We don't want to feel the burden of the orphan and the enslaved. Someone turn up some noise and we're distracted. We're distracted even with good things. Things that sound spiritual. Sometimes it's religious work and we're in the church working. Some of the worst, most distracted men are pastors. How in the world could that be? They spend all their life in the Bible and they're distracted from the real need of their family, their wife, and the dying world around them. How does this work? The enemy is very good at distracting a man and the distracted man will not go. The addicted man. The distracted and the addicted are oftentimes simultaneously the same because you're addicted to sports, you're addicted to uh, politics, you're addicted to news and information, you're addicted to business and work and self-importance. If you're addicted to anything and you have that cyclical pattern where you cannot give it up and you argue with God over it, it's like, this is mine and I will keep it, you will not go. Because if you are holding on to things is more precious than Jesus Christ, and if he's not your addiction, your lone addiction, I have to have Jesus, I have to have Jesus, you will not go because it will cost you everything to go. The polluted man, need I say more? He's lost in his sin. He could be under the banner of Christianity, but he's a polluted man, and his mind is the workshop of Satan. He agrees that Jesus Christ died. He agrees with all this stuff in the Bible, but he's a polluted man, and he has allowed a warping to come into his being. And he is about himself and his own pleasure, and he will not go. The anxious man. In scripture, it says, be anxious for nothing, 
It says, be careful for nothing in the, in the King James. Be careful. Have no care for the things of this world. The cares of this world will enslave you. You care about one thing, and that is the heart of God, the glory of God, the weak truth. You are after the kingdom. You seek first the kingdom. God will take care of all these other cares. The man who is anxious and riddled with fear and concern, the Greek word is miramnal. And over and over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, Peter, no miramnal. Don't allow it in. It'll cripple you. It will enslave you. The anxious man, the one who deals with the trivialities of his life, they don't feel trivial to him, believe me. When his bank account is going low, it doesn't seem trivial, but in light of the kingdom of heaven, it is trivial. And God will take care of it. You stay focused on the king. Enter the presence. Overhear him. Be ready. God needs his men of steel, and these aren't men of steel. Here am I. Send me. I have a subtitle under this called Operation 5,000 Martys. That means something here at Ellerslie. We had two guys last Saturday, so eight days ago, named Nick Thompson and Nick Froderman, that jumped on a plane and went out to Michigan, flew into Detroit, and they're after a man named Marty. It's hard to explain. I'm not going to go into the whole story. But Nick Thompson is burdened with a man and the lostness of a man who has been left for dead. He's dying, he has cancer, and no one seems to care about this poor man. And he's just out in Howell, Michigan. And Nick Thompson has been burdened for this man. And his burden strangely became our burden. None of us had even met him. Nick hadn't even met him. And we're weeping over a man named Marty. We don't even know who he is. What's going on with us? It was a beautiful work of God for those of us that were saying, replace this heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I don't want to be the unfeeling man. I want to feel what you feel, Lord Jesus. We asked for everyone in here because we wanted to raise money to see if we could send them out, to send them out on Operation Marty. We wanted two plane tickets. In a matter of a couple hours, we had around $2,800 by the student body. We joked that we need to raise tuition if you guys have that much extra money sitting around. It was unbelievable what happened as a result. And those men are out there, and there's even a possibility that Marty and his son Jeremy are coming back later this next week to Ellerslie. I mean, the story is extraordinary, but when we had this money, it was in a jar. I remember someone had given Nick Thompson a jar of just cash. I don't know where it came from, but I remember seeing a $50 bill on the outside, and we were like, whoa, what's this? We came up and we prayed over it like fishes and loaves, and we say, for 5,000 Martys. And we're beginning to see it. We're beginning to see it a work within the body where he's building us. He's given us a sensitivity because we're no longer just dealing with our junk. Get the junk out. Let Jesus take care of you so that you can focus on the Martys. We're so stuck in ourselves. Oh, I got this issue, and what am I going to do with this? That we don't see anything. Everything else is a blur, and you will not go. But God's saying, Where are you? I need my men and my women. I need to send them. Where are they? We're finding some here. And I know my little list of, you know, that I gave you that you guys need to sign up for isn't very inviting. But I'm doing it because I want you to feel the gravity and the weight of what true Christianity is. That's the job we're signing up for. But we're signing up not because it feels good to our flesh, but because it brings glory to Jesus Christ. 
who has given up everything for us. And this is what he asks of us. Operation 5,000 Martys. So here's four things. We have a list. And uh, Nathan, do you know how many things are on that list that we have? 45? 25. We have 25 operations that we're currently engaged in as a body. Here's four of them. And I want to invite you as the body of Christ to join us in these operations. In fact, we have so much need all of a sudden. You'll notice that we never talk about money here purposely. I'm not a big fan of talking about money in the church. However, we always have a box back there. That's not what I'm talking about right now. Sandy, could you poke your hand up in the air, Sandy? Sandy is my assistant. Uh, If any of you feel like you'd like to give towards what we're calling Operation Marty or Operation 5000 Martys, I want you to give it to Sandy so we don't mix it up with anything in the box. We have so much need all of a sudden. It's amazing. A little body suddenly says, we're open, God. And we have 25 operations. We have things all over the world that God is saying, and here. And we're almost feeling overwhelmed. I remember Mike Wazowski saying it this way. I know you guys may be feeling overwhelmed, but it's like stacking 25 pennies up next to the Empire State Building. God's bigger. And that's what we need to remember. Our God is big enough for 25 operations, please, uh, of course. But we're not used to it. We're not used to being stretched like this. But we have dying people all over this world that God's saying, you want to be sent? I need you. Please, make yourselves available. Marty's soul, we want this man. We're burdened for this man. God has taken one little sheep and saying, leave the 99, go after this man. For some reason, God cares. He cares about that little plot of barley and beans that all of Israel has fled from. And he draws his sword. And he's saying, draw your sword with me. Esterline's fever. One of the Haitian children has had a very uh, high fever. Well, you know what? This is our watch. This is one of our precious children in our midst. But if you don't know about it as the body, you don't know to fight for it. Let's fight. Let's stand and say, God, do what you need to do. Wake me up in the middle of the night. Keep me up all night long, if necessary, to pray this through and to see Esterline strong. Valencia's infection. She has some infection on her head. And you know what? That's it. That's like a lion coming into the camp and grabbing one of the sheep. What are we going to do about it? This affects one of our own. Let's stand up and fight for her. Tessa's hearing. We have a precious uh, girl that went through summer semester and is still here in the EALT program, and she's deaf. Not just deaf, but she has tinnitus, and she has a constant ringing, and it's, it's very difficult to even live like this. And she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has said, I'm going to make you whole. But she symbolizes something in the body of Christ, and that is that there's a blockage of hearing in the, in the church from being able to hear the gospel. We hear it, but at a surface level. We're oftentimes hearing noise that has nothing to do with God. Instead of hearing, who can I send? Who will go for us? Our ears are blocked. And we want those ears to be unblocked. What do we need? Men of steel. Men who are willing to rise up and say, Take me. Send me.
Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.